Welcome to Navara Live. It's a pleasure to be back after the best part of a week um, in Dorset. My dog has seen the sea for the first time. She was very pleased. Um, I'm very pleased to be joined by Mike Bancole. Mike, how's it going? Yeah, not too bad. I saw the photos of your dog having the time of its life. It was uh, very cute. It was very cute. She's going back to the seaside tomorrow, so it's a real turnaround in her life. Um, what have we got for you tonight? Coming up, uh, an update on the situation with conflict in Ukraine um, after Moscow was hit by drone attacks, a debate on tuition fees and how higher education should be funded, and the right-wing freakout over drag queens is continuing. This one is really, really ridiculous. Um, stay tuned for all of that. But first, Keir Starmer has spent the summer trying to woo British business, and to do so, he's formulated an enticingly original strategy. He's been clear. Under his leadership, if you're wealthy and you don't like Labour's policies, well, don't worry, we've got other ones. The latest example was reported in the Financial Times. So this is the headline, Labour rose back on workers' rights to blunt Tory anti-business claims. Now, according to the article, Labour is watering down a series of reforms they proposed for Britain's labour market. In particular, it says the party won't necessarily be bringing the single status of a worker into law. Now, that was something they pledged in 2021 after several court cases involving people employed in the gig economy turned on the question of whether they were a worker or self-employed. Now, that matters because it's only if someone is classed as a worker that they are entitled to rights such as the minimum wage or holiday pay. On what the party now plans instead, the FT write this. Instead of introducing the policy immediately, Labour has agreed it would consult on the proposal in government, considering how a simpler framework that differentiates between workers and the genuinely self-employed could properly capture the breadth of employment relationships in the UK and ensure workers can still benefit from flexible working where they choose to do so. Now, it's a briefing from Labour that will please the bosses at the likes of Uber and Deliveroo, but the new messaging appears to have met some resistance from within Starmer's party, as well as being Labour's deputy leader and shadow chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, long title. Angela Rayner is also shadow secretary of state for the future of work. Now, that means workers' rights fall well within her brief, and this morning she posted an expansive thread on social media. Now, these were some of the key points. Labour's New Deal for working people will be the biggest levelling up of workers' rights in decades, providing security, treating workers fairly, and paying a decent wage. She says we'll tackle insecure work by banning zero-hours contracts, ending fire and rehire, and ending qualifying periods for basic rights, which currently leave working people waiting up to two years for basic protections. She also says tackling bogus self-employment is a key priority for a Labour government and stronger protections against unfair dismissal will mean workers can no longer be sacked without reason from day one. Rayner also posted this, which might be a direct reference to the FT article. I'm proud that we developed our comprehensive new deal together with Labour's affiliated unions. Far from watering it down, we will now set out in detail how we will implement it and tackle the Tories' scaremongering. Um, so that reference to scaremonger, it seems, you know, Keir Starmer's strategy appears to be if the Tories are attacking the policy, dump it. Um, Angela Rayner seems to, um, if we are to sort of take this thread at face value, be suggesting that the way Tory scaremongering should be tackled is, is by tackling the scaremongering, not changing the policy. Um, Labour's deputy leader ended her thread with this. The New Deal will be a core part of our manifesto and our plan for growth. Lay raising living standards for all will bring forward legislation within 100 days of taking office. 
So it seems clear it wasn't Rayner who briefed the FT on Starmer's labour rights pivot, and John McDonnell is scathing about whoever did. He said this, whoever thought it clever to brief the FT Labour's New Deal for workers' rights was being watered down to please big business, clearly never told Angela Rayner. Single status, sectoral pay bargaining, and rights from day one are all two important transformative reforms for these games. Mike, somewhat repetitive. We're here again talking about a Labour briefing where they're suggesting they're going to water down some of their policies in case some rich people or some conservative papers oppose them. Um, I suppose there aren't particularly concrete announcements here as to what they will in fact be doing. Sort of, We're going to do a review instead of do something the moment we get into power. I mean, what's your take on it all? It's just no way to do politics if like, the leaked report in the FT is true. It just feels like, at what point do Labour seize the initiative and try and take control of the agenda as opposed to playing this game where they're constantly dodging punches from the Conservative Party or anticipating punches from the Conservative Party and being like, oh, we're going to dodge that one just in case. It just feels like a weird thing to do when Labour are ahead in the polls and in a position now where they can control the agenda. They don't have to roll back on workers' rights. They don't have to you know, adopt a regressive stance on, on migration or, or on the climate. They can be progressive now. They can actually say, look, we're ahead in the polls. Voters like us. Let's be progressive. I think actually part of the reason why we have seen so many U-turns to Starmer isn't just the idea of trying to win an election by all costs. I mean, I, I think that's part of it. I think part of it's also about this is where Labour are, this is what Labour are. And there's only so many times we can do, you know, people can say to us, oh, you know, Labour are going to, you know, you turn when they're in office again, and, you know, it's all going to be lovely, flowers and butterflies, all of that jazz. I don't think that's the case, actually. I actually think that this is who they are, and their values are being made eminently clear through these variety of these U-turns that we've seen. We've seen U-turns on, on new layers in recent weeks, we've seen this recent U-turn on workers' rights. And I think Owen Jones kind of sums up the Labour Party really, really well when he when he calls you know, Labour under Keir Starmer a dishonest project. And I think that's absolutely true. When you look at Keir Starmer's 10 pledges, the 10 pledges he used to become the leader of the Labour Party, if you put them to one side and you kind of put his policy platform to the other side at the moment and compare them, it's virtually night and day. So, you know, Labour voters have been conned by this man and he continues to you know, take these really odd U-turns at moments when Labour are ahead in the polls and can literally control the agenda at this point. You know, voters, you know, are saying to Labour, you know, we trust you. So Labour can, if they want to, be progressive and actually try and change your narrative. But for Labour and for Keir Starmer, for where Keir Starmer wants to position the party, that's not what he wants. And he actually, I feel like, this is the reconfiguration of the Labour Party under, under Keir Starmer. Part of this is to win an election, but also part of this is about, you know, reimagining the Labour Party for the worse. And of course, whatever, you know, the person who briefed the Financial Times this story would say is, of course, we we can't be too pro-union before an election because that will be used to attack us and then swing voters will be put off. We have to be grown-ups. We have to prioritise getting into power. And that means saying we're going to water down workers' rights or water down their policy for, or their, their, their previous policy for workers' rights. What's interesting here, though, is for a party that often looks to the US Democrats for inspiration, especially the Labour right often look to the Democrats for inspiration, Starmer's Labour are staking out a pretty different position from America's current Democratic president. Now, in his bid for re-election, Biden has been saying things like this. Hello, Philadelphia! Hello! Organized labor, union labor. There's labor and there's union labor. Folks, it feels good to be home. I'm Joe Biden. I'm Jill Biden's husband and damn proud of it. 
A Philly girl. Card-carrying member of her union. You know, there are a lot of politicians in this country who can't say the word union. Because you know I'm not one of them. I'm proud to say the word. I'm proud to be the most pro-union president in American history. I promised you I would be. But what I'm really proud about, I, what I'm really proud about is being reelected the most pro-union president in history. Look. Now, that's a very, very different tone from Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves. And on policy, there might also be a gap emerging. This is a recent headline from the New York Times. Biden proposal could lead to employee status for gig workers. A proposed rule long awaited by labor activists could make it harder for companies to classify workers as independent contractors. So this is much like um, the policy that Keir Starmer seems to be, or some, someone in his team seems to be suggesting, will be dumped. Now let's go to the New York Times article for some more detail. So they write this. The proposed rule is essentially a test that the Labour Department will apply to determine whether workers are contractors or employees for companies. The test considers factors such as how much control workers have over how they do their jobs and how much opportunity they have to increase their earnings by doing things like offering new services. Workers who have little of either are often considered employees. The new version of the test lowers the bar for that employee classification from the current test which the Trump administration's Labour Department created. As a result, the proposal is a potential blow to gig companies and other service providers that argue their workers are contractors, though it would not immediately affect the status of those workers. It says it would not immediately affect the status of those workers. So somewhat ambiguous, um, that write-up. I'm sure the devil will be in the detail. Shareholders, though, at top gig economy companies seem to have got a clear message from this announcement, potentially from sort of uh, those words that we're hearing from Joe Biden on the stump, on the on his re-election bid. Um, and uh, they're getting the message because on the same day that Biden's administration announced a proposed rule, Shares in Uber and Lyft dropped by 10%. So they clearly think this is significant. What do you think about this? So, I mean, Tony Blair very much got inspiration from Bill Clinton. You often see sort of Labour Party leaders and especially people on the Labour right sort of saying, oh, we're going to, we're, we're going to bring over this uh, Democratic Party strategist. We're going to go and learn from the American Democrats, the progress wing, sort of the right wing ring of the Labour Party. They want Labour to be more like the Democratic Party because it doesn't have formal links to the, to the trade union movement. But now it seems like Starmer and um, Reeves, at least sort of in, in terms of the messaging they're putting out, are positioning themselves quite far to the right of, of Joe Biden. Why is Joe Biden able to sort of stand up and say, I'm going to be the most, pro well, well, I am the most pro-union president in history. Again, whether or not that's the case is debatable. But it seems clear that Starmer is not willing to, uh, to give a similar message about where he stands. I think Biden's just a braver and bolder politician. I mean, you know, a lot of the left might not agree totally with Joe Biden's political platform and what he stands for as a politician. But I think it's fair to say he's just bolder on these issues, whether it's the environment as well. I think he's been fairly bold on that. And I think I actually think America in, in recent months have proposed some very radical progressive environmental policies. So actually, Starmer could do a, a lot worse than, than, than look at Biden and look at some of the things that Biden's actually done while in office and, and use Biden to some extent as, as some, some kind of inspiration. I think what also makes Starmer's position baffling on so many issues is that often he's out of sync with the public on these issues so when it comes to more protection for gig gig workers this is something that's supported by loads of voters you know voters in general want these 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 people to be protected to have some protections to have some rights 
So actually, by you know pivoting to the right on these issues, in some ways he's losing you know support from, from key voters. And Labour under Starmer have tried to position themselves as the real Workers' Party, at least rhetorically. Anyway, they, they say things like you know we, we we care about workers in Britain, and you know it's all been all a bit all, all the talk about his his dad being a toy maker, all of that stuff. I get it, but there's only so far the rest of it can take you. And I think Biden has shown that. You know, you can be bold. You can. You don't have to constantly play this game of dodging punches and trying to avoid your policies being on Tory leaflets. I mean, that's literally how politics works, right? Your part, your policies are going to be attacked by the, by your opponents. You have to prepare for those attacks and understand that you can be bold in the face of those attacks and actually still adopt a progressive stance, especially when that progressive stance is backed by voters. It's interesting, isn't it? I, I feel like sort of Joe Biden has recognised that left-wing policies are quite popular now and is leaning into that. Um, Keir Starmer seems to not. Now, I, I suppose one explanation would be, you know, first past the post, um, that Keir Starmer is appealing to a very specific demographic in the Red Wall. Although people, in the, you know, our traditional idea of the Red Wall is not people who hate trade unions. I thought the whole point is they're supposed to be traditional industrial workers, so people who you know, maybe are retired now but once would have been members of a trade union. Of course, first past the post is also... Um, in place in America. So I, I do think it's very interesting seeing this this massive divergence from, obviously, Joe Biden, a centrist Democrat. He's not, you know, his history isn't as a Bernie-style person. Historically, if you looked at Joe Biden and Keir Starmer, you'd say Keir Starmer's to the left of Joe Biden, right, in terms of the positions they took and the platform on which they got elected to the, well, Joe Biden wasn't to the leadership of his party, but Joe Biden to, the, to become the, the Democratic presidential candidate and Keir Starmer to become the leader of the Labour Party. Keir Starmer's campaign was much more left-wing, right? Joe Biden was saying, look, I'm a centrist because you need to be a centrist to get elected. Keir Starmer was saying, I'm really radical, elect me, in completely different directions once they get into, well, office in the case of Biden and into the leadership position in the case of Keir Starmer. Let's go on to our next story. Russian officials have accused Ukraine of launching a drone attack on Moscow in the early hours of this morning. The attack happened at around 4am Moscow time when a drone smashed into the Expo Center in central Moscow, causing a loud explosion. Russia's defense ministry has said that air defense has shot down the drone, causing it to crash into the building. Four Moscow airports were briefly closed as a precaution. Moscow's mayor said there were no casualties. According to Russian media, a large-scale evacuation of buildings in Moscow city centre has also taken place. That's after reports circulated of, quote, a swarm of drones heading towards the capital. Those rumours turned out to be false, but they show a heightened sense of alert amongst the inhabitants of Moscow. And last night's attack is just the latest in a series of drone assaults on Russia. The first was an apparent attack on the Kremlin in early May. Then on May the 30th, Russian authorities reported that Moscow had been targeted by 30 drones. Many were shot down, causing large explosions in the city's suburbs. According to the BBC, there have been more than 120 drone attacks on Russian targets this year. They've been concentrated in Moscow along Russia's western border with Ukraine and in Russia annexed Crimea. Ukraine hasn't officially claimed responsibility for specific drone attacks, but Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has said that attacks on Russian territory are, quote, inevitable, natural, and absolutely fair. Um, and whatever you think of the wisdom of drone attacks on Russian territory, are they wise? Is this helpful? It would be very, very difficult to argue that they were not proportionate or a wholly proportionate response to the illegal and bloody invasion that has been pursued by the Kremlin. What's going on in Ukraine is a hell of a lot worse than what's going on in Russia right now. 
In terms of the fight to defend Ukraine from that invasion, Kiev got a boost today um, with the news that its air force will be getting some new kit. Denmark and the Netherlands have said that the US has given the green light for F-16 fighter jets to be given to Ukrainian forces. In a letter to Dutch and Danish leaders, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken said this, I am writing to express the United States' full support for both the transfer of F-16 fighter aircraft to Ukraine and for the training of Ukrainian pilots by qualified F-16 instructors. It remains critical that Ukraine is able to defend itself against ongoing Russian aggression and violation of its sovereignty. It's not clear when the jets will arrive, but it's thought that flight training for Ukraine's first batch of F-16 pilots won't be completed until next summer. That means Russia is likely to retain air dominance well into 2024. And it's a delay that has come as a blow to Ukraine, which had hoped to use the planes to bolster its counteroffensive against Russian occupation. Launched in early June, the counteroffensive was aimed at regaining territory taken by Russia along the war's front line in southeastern Ukraine. But progress has been slow with only very modest Ukrainian gains. You will notice the map we're showing you now with Russian-controlled territory in red looks very similar to the state of play before the counteroffensive. Ukraine had been hoping to take back Melitopol to cut off Russia's land bridge to Crimea. That hasn't happened, and according to US intelligence, isn't likely to anytime soon. That means Russian troops and supplies are relatively free to move throughout all the parts of southeastern Ukraine that Russia currently occupies. Meanwhile, Russia has continued to fire missiles deep into Ukraine. Earlier this week, missiles struck targets from Lviv near Ukraine's western border with Poland to Kramatorsk in the east. Kiev said it shot down 16 of the 28 missiles fired by Russia. At least three people were killed. I'm joined now by Paul Rogers, Emeritus Professor of Peace Studies at Bradford University. Um, thank you for joining us. And let's start with the drones in, in Moscow. So do we have a decent sense of who's behind them? Will this be the Ukrainian army? Who, who else could be sending these drones to Moscow? We don't know for sure. Obviously, they're coming from Ukrainian leaders. Uh, whether there are partisans involved, it's possible, but unlikely now. I think it's something which is probably done by a unit of the army uh, under pretty close control by the uh, uh, Zelensky administration. And it's been really programmed to, to continue. Now that they're going from Moscow in a fairly systematic way, I think you can see that what they're about is really something which is very much symbolic as much as anything else. They're actually trying to show to Russians that they can do to Russia what Russia is doing to them, albeit, as you say, on a much smaller scale. So I think this is much more on the psychological warfare side. And what is simply not clear is whether this is actually going to have an effect. Because I think the problem for Ukraine is that Putin has more or less recalibrated this entire war uh, along the lines of the original claims that basically Russia was defending itself against NATO aggression. And now what he can now say is that Ukraine is only able to do this kind of thing, and of course having the F-16s is another example, because this is essentially a proxy war and the real aggressor is NATO. Now, whether that's true or not, and neither here nor there, what it seems to be doing to some extent is bolstering support for the Putin regime within Russia. Uh, and that may even be higher than it was six or eight months ago. You can't be sure because the sources are so various on the, variable on this, but I think it's probably true. So while it may be something which is very good for Ukrainian morale, um, the paradox is it may not be that unhelpful uh, to, to Putin. Because meanwhile, as you've been saying very clearly, um, the Ukrainian advance 
is quite seriously bogged down. Uh, you know, sources in the United States now see this war going on at least another year and maybe two years. Uh, it could change very quickly. This is always the case. But as far as one could tell, that's where we are now. So essentially, for the moment, Putin is retaining control, retaining sufficient support in Russia. And while the Ukrainians are showing what they're capable of doing, it's proving a very, very difficult war for them. These drone strikes, let's say, if they were, uh, if it is the case that they have been sort of mounted by people close to um, the Ukrainian government or the Ukrainian military, is this is this potentially a bit of a, you know, done potentially out of desperation? I mean, there was a counteroffensive which we heard a lot about um, at the beginning of this year, which was supposed to take back territory, supposed to break um, Russia's land bridge from Russia to Crimea, that seems to have failed. It doesn't seem to have achieved very much at all. In fact, it looks sort of a bit like a First World War situation where you've got loads of people losing their lives, loads of um, sort of military equipment expended, and then front lines which look very, very similar to how they did, you know, before the battles commenced. I mean, what do you make of the counteroffensive and where we sort of stand at this point in time? I think one has to be realistic about this and say that essentially counteroffensive is not working out as planned, at least now. I know it's odd to say this, but you can never be sure about these things. And it could well be that Russia and its ground forces are actually in more trouble than they appear to be. But on the face of it, and what one knows from basically official sources, what is called public domain intelligence, uh, the situation is not going the way that Ukraine expected. As to your point about who's responsible for the drones, all you can say is that I have no doubt at all that the United States is fully informed of what is going on and is not in any way trying to put pressure on the Ukrainian government to stop it. So I mean, from their perspective, this may be in which you're getting some impact in Russia, uh, but it does not seem to be the level of impact that one would hope for on the Ukrainian side, frankly. How did military stalemates work? I mean, it's a very basic question from me, but I mean, how how could it be that one side sort of gets a, a decisive breakthrough um, to change the situation on the ground so that this doesn't just sort of continue for forever and maybe you get a bit of a frozen conflict? I suppose the Ukrainian side might be hoping that F-16s will make the difference. That's fighter jets from the West. I mean, is there any chance that sort of Ukraine could be given F-16s or any other you know, form of weaponry, which suddenly gives them this decisive edge, which means that they can mount counteroffensives that will be a success. We're already hoping to get that. I mean, they've had very good intelligence from American sources, almost sort of 24-7, almost minute by minute. Uh, and the American intelligence capability, particularly in terms of satisfy uh, satellites, is really pretty immense. So Ukraine already has that advantage. You may, you may remember there was the high miles multiple launch rocket system which is expected to make a major difference in the counteroffensive. It's made a difference, but not enough. And the thing is that Russia spent the best part of nine months putting in very heavy reinforcements all the way along the front that the Ukrainians had to penetrate uh, to an extent, I think, which even exceeded what the Americans anticipated was happening. And to this extent, the Russians, with their huge advantage in heavy artillery, were able to combine that with making it very costly for the Ukrainians to actually uh, advance. The bottom line in this, is, and I think this has been true almost from the month, is that this is a violent stalemate in the sense that Ukraine will not lose because NATO cannot allow it to lose, quite apart from anything else. But on the other hand, the Russians are very unlikely to lose because they can always threaten to escalate. I'm not saying they're going to go for chemical and nuclear weapons, but they can threaten that. 
and basically get tensions very much higher. So this is the, the reality has changed. This is still a conflict that has to be resolved by negotiation. That may be extremely uncomfortable and, and very, if you like, annoying to say, given what the Ukrainians have suffered. But that, I'm afraid, is the reality of the conflict. And I think it is realized it may be possible to begin to move towards some kind of settlement. And it's already been clear, although there's been a very quick withdrawal of this, that NATO is implying that settlement may involve some concessions from uh, Ukraine. Obviously, most of the concessions will come from the Russian side if we do get a deal, but there will have to be Ukrainian concessions. And that's a very hard thing for them to swear, given the, that they've suffered. Moving straight on to our next story. With A-level results released this week, BBC Newsnight hosted a debate on university funding, and it included a fiery exchange between Chloe Fields from the NUS, that's the National Union of Students, David Willits, who was university's minister under the Tory and Lib Dem coalition, and Joe Grady, who leads the Lecturers' Union. Why should you have to have the money to be able to access higher education? You, do, you, don't, you, you don't, don't have you don't to have the money. Well, you, uh, uh, if you look at the rents, how high rents are right now, uh, I mean, you're still getting loads of debt that you end up have to pay off. And th- let's just be honest, the problem isn't always just paying the tuition fees, the debt. It's about the whole system, putting pound signs over students. We're seeing it's not working. OK, we, and OK. It, it needs radical change. Lord Willis. I'd just like to correct this really dangerous idea that somehow a debt is like a bank overdraft. It's money that students have to pay. It is not like the so-called debt is not like a credit card debt or an overdraft or a mortgage. What it says is if you are earning above £25,000 a year through income tax, you'll pay an extra 9% rate. So if you're earning £35,000 a year, you'll be paying about, which is £3,000 a month, you'll be paying about... 75 to 80 pounds a month okay. back as okay. a graduate. This, like, this is not like the American debt. Sure, sure, sure. I want, I want to hear from Charlie because I promised him, then Joe, then Eden. It's easy for you to sit and lecture somebody yeah. when you didn't have to go through the exact system that she's talking to you about. And I think what you should do as someone who helped introduce the system that Chloe is saying is putting working class people off studying is listen to her, not lecture her about I'm, an experience I'm that you have not been it's very strange to hear sort of a former universities minister and someone who was, you know, the architect of the current system we have. So it was under the coalition that fees went up from £3,000 a year to £9,000 a year, sort of say this is a so-called debt. He's right. It, it's not like a mortgage. Um, it's it, it's not like a credit card um, overdraft or a credit card bill um, because it can't make you bankrupt, right? You, you, you can't go and get your student loan and then find that later in life, well, I suppose with a mortgage, it's a mortgage they take back your house. They can't take back your degree if you don't pay it back. And you won't find yourself becoming bankrupt because you, you have to pay these sort of ever-increasing fees. What it is, is a marginal tax rate for people who haven't yet paid back their debt. And that's what's key here, right? Because if you're very wealthy and you can pay it all up front, you can pay your debt off very quickly. Um, you will pay less interest because you paid it off quickly. Whereas if you have less money, you're going to be paying it for a long time. And what I find interesting here is just you've got this this Tory lord, right, conservative lord, who is sort of saying, oh, it's only an extra 9% on your income tax. Now, this is a conservative minister, right? These are the people who say, we can't possibly increase income tax. You know, this would disincentivize work. And he's saying, it's only 9%, 9%. Now, can you imagine if the Labour Party sort of at the next election said, what we're going to do is, is put nine percentage points on on tax, you know, 9p for every pound you earn over 25k, we are going to add to tax. Now, that would be completely bizarre, right? But the only way they have managed to make it seem acceptable is one, only non-rich students pay it. 
And two, they've managed to phrase it as as a debt. He's saying, oh, so-called debt, but you've called it a debt for a reason because the Tories don't want to be arguing for sort of increased taxes. Seems very bizarre, very dishonest to me. Um, let's look at David Willett's response to Joe Grady's point there. Of course I understand the point that's being made. And let me first of all just reply to that. As a result of what we did, we got rid of the old controls on the number of students going to university. More students go... I I don't agree with you. I think more students going to university, including a big increase in the number of low-income students going, is a great social progress. And of course, in the year I brought in those changes, I really wanted to track the disaster would have been if young people from disadvantaged backgrounds thought they were having to pay for their education and couldn't afford to go. That would have been a tragedy, but it didn't happen. The pressure point, and I completely agree with you, the pressure point isn't the fees and the so-called debt. The pressure point is cash to live on while you're at okay. university. And I'm going to hear that from some more students right now. facing students. Mike, you work in a university, you're a lecturer, so I assume this is a, an issue close to your heart. Um, you're presumably a student not too long ago. You, know, you've, you don't seem like you, you've been out of university for decades. Um, so how do you feel? I'm sure you're still paying off your student loan as well. Um, how do you feel about this? Who, who, whose side are you on? Is there no policy but abolish tuition fees that the left should back? Are there potentially some nuances here? There are some nuances for sure, and I think it's actually one of those debates that splits academics in some ways. You know, I was speaking to my colleagues about this just two days ago in the context of A-level results and, you know, some schemes I've been involved in. And I think there are kind of two schools of thoughts based on the academics I know personally. So on one hand, you have the idea that 9,000 is just way too much. Like that's way too much. I think there's general agreement that's way too much. However, some would argue that maybe we should return to 3,000 rather than abolishing tuition fees completely. There are others who argue, and I think I'm more sympathetic to this argument, the idea that we should actually view education as a societal good. So the more people that go into higher education, the better it is for our economy because we have more knowledgeable citizens after you know their university degrees with more skills and they can help the economy. They can go into, you know, into nursing, for example, into business. And you know, if you're someone that views the world through economic growth, they can help contribute to economic growth and also to a better society, a society that runs better with, you know, with better trained nurses, better trained doctors, etc. So actually, that's a strong argument for having free tuition fees and actually having and providing access to higher education for, for all and, and, and you can reduce the barriers to higher education. And it's something I feel quite strongly about because I was actually involved as a PhD student in a scheme that helped, or was going to help, you know, students from underprivileged backgrounds go to university as part of a, a, a programme between King's College University and Raheem Sterling Foundation now there are going to be seven, you know, black sh- students who come from low-income backgrounds. They're going to have their tuition fees and their uh, maintenance covered by the Raheem Sterling Foundation. So that's something that's really, really important. And I feel like what I found over the course of that partnership was that people from low-income backgrounds, as little children from low-income backgrounds, are put off by the cost of university. You, you hear them talking about the idea that, you know, they're taking years out of, you know, after they finish it at, at school, they're taking years out to try and save money and still not able to save money for university. You know, they're making these huge sacrifices to attend, attend university. I also think it's important to remember that not every student can take out a loan. So for some Muslim students, and, and you know, Muslim students, some do take out loans, others don't because it's impermissible uh, and, and some can't take out the loan because it has interest. So that's impermissible for some. So you're actually locking off and, and, and restricting access to university for some people. So... I do take the point where there is some nuance. I definitely think there is some nuance. And whenever I speak to my colleagues about this, there's loads of debates and back and forth, healthy debates, um, and it goes back and forth. But I do think we should really view education, higher education, as a societal good, but benefits us all in the long term. In the long term, 
we will benefit from that ch- child who goes to university at 18 and, and ends up becoming a nurse. That will be a net positive for us in society. So I think we should you know, really change the way we view higher education um, so we can have access for all uh, to higher education. Yeah, I was thinking about this today, you know, in terms of the point that Joe Grady was was making to David Willett. She was saying, look, you didn't pay for your education. So why are you now lecturing this current student and sort of explaining why her concerns are wrong? And I suppose, you know, David Willett's, well, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but presumably, you know, you'd, you'd have an answer such as, well, back in the day, only 14%, I think by the end of the 70s, 14% of people went to university. Now it's 50%. And so while it might have been affordable, then it's not affordable now. The problem with that argument is it cuts across another argument against getting rid of tuition fees, which is to say, if we were to have free tuition, that would only benefit the relatively well-off, um, and it's making the the underprivileged subsidise the privileged. Now, obviously, if you're going to go with that argument now, it's it's weaker now than it was in the 1970s, because in the 1970s, people were really subsidising the elite, you know, the top 14%. Now, they're only subsidising the top 50%. Now, obviously, it's not as clear-cut as the top 50% of the people who went to university, but it's going to be, you know, people who go to university are going to be proportionately um, better off than um, people who, who who don't. Of course, there's also, uh, I mean, I think here, free tuition, loads of good arguments for it. I'd like it. A graduate tax also more fair than the current system, right? Because then what you would have is wealthy people. It's not that they can sort of pay off their loan really quickly and it's only poorer students who end up paying this 9% marginal rate for the rest of their lives. You could have a graduate tax on everyone or everyone that went to university, so 50% of the population. It was like one or two P. I don't know, I haven't done the maths, but you can imagine it being a lot lower than nine percentage points. And then the wealthy people, they'd be paying it throughout their whole working lives, which would you know, put money into the system which at the moment we're sort of having to lean on lower income students who are going to be paying this 9% marginal tax for their whole life, which is a huge amount of money. You know? You're know, you not going to go bankrupt from that, but it is going to make it much harder. Well, I mean, it's pretty much impossible to get a deposit for a house anyway, but it's going to make it much harder um, to you know, pay for the cost of living in a cost of living crisis. And that's 9%. It's, I do find it quite astonishing the way David Willett's talks. It's only a 9% marginal increase on your income. Like That is such an anti-Tory argument. Next story. You might have hoped that six asylum seekers dying in the channel would have provoked some self-reflection among Britain's right-wing commentariat. Not so. This was James Wales speaking on the Murdoch-owned Talk TV. We've got to do something about criminal gangs. We've got to do something about these illegal routes. But James Wales, the British people have had enough. And whatever people say about all rhetoric, I don't want to see people die in the channel. I think it's disgusting, right? but we need to do something and we need to do well, it quick. Sadly, people die all over the world and uh, I can never, I'm sorry about it. It sounds terrible what someone's got to say. I don't know, these people don't know what the, you know, their families or anything else. And, and quite frankly, there are more people dying on the roads. I'm worried about them. I am concerned that these people who are called migrants are nothing more than criminals. They are not migrants at all. They are paying enormous amounts of money to criminal gangs to criminally come to this country and who knows what they're gonna do. Most of them seem to be breaking the law, running rackets. If this was, I said this before, if this was a land border, we would have the military there stopping people breaking in. We have a moat around this country. We should be able to deal with this quite easily. We should have the Navy in the channel we should be pointing our weaponry at these people coming here illegally. This can't, country can't cope. That was such, I mean, it was obviously a grotesque like, argument being made there, but I mean, it's also completely stupid. Like everything he said that was 
you know, a, a claim about how the world works was just wrong. The idea, if we had a land border, we'd have the military there. Now, most countries in the world with land borders don't have the military guarding their border. Be an incredibly expensive thing to do, right? <laughs> to just station your military all the way along a border. Also, of course, it would be, you know, a human rights outrage, right? It's also wrong to say that this is criminal to come here. Now, the UK government might like to pretend that the UK's legal code makes it illegal or criminal um, to come into the UK without authorization. But we are also signed up to something called the Refugee Convention. And the Refugee Convention means that if you are a refugee or an asylum seeker, you have the right to claim asylum wherever you want, in any country you can get to. So there is a higher law um, than whatever the Tories are passing in Parliament at the moment, which is the Refugee Convention. And that means that no asylum seeker is illegal, right? It, it, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, also, this is, I think, how far to the right discourse is going in this country on this topic, right? So I remember in, in 2015, when there were lots of headlines about a migrant crisis. And obviously, this was in the middle of the Syrian civil war, or the height of the Syrian civil war. And there was sort of a push on the left or, you know, among liberals as well, basically to say, no, this isn't a migrant crisis. It's a refugee crisis because these people are refugees. And there was an understanding that if you refer to, I mean, they were refugees, if you refer to these refugees as refugees instead of migrants, there'll be more public sympathy towards them and also a more, a more correct understanding of what's going on here. Now, um, even the idea that these people are migrants is, is too much for the right wingers on on a TV station owned by Rupert Murdoch, they would say they're not migrants, they're criminals. So, you know, the correct thing is to say they're not migrants, they're refugees or asylum seekers. No, now they're not migrants, they're just, they're not even migrants, they're just criminals. Mike, what did you make of that? How far to the right, how extreme is British discourse getting on this topic? I think it's getting really extreme. I dare we can point weapons at these people. And, you know, when you listen to him speak, he's almost devoid of, of any emotion or, or, or compassion for these people and what they're going through. And I think the right seem to fail to understand why people are risking their lives and crossing the English Channel on dinghies in the first place. It's not because these people get a thrill out of crossing the English Channel on dinghies and risking their lives in doing so, by the way. It's because they have no other way to get to this country. The governments have systematically cut off safe and legal and viable routes to enter this country and to seek refuge. But that's why people are having to risk their lives. So if you want to end these criminal gangs, and I agree, by the way, we need to do something about these criminal gangs who are exploiting these people um, and, you know, making them cross over the English Channel. We need to ensure there are safe and viable routes for these people to enter this country and seek refuge. It's a human right. And that's that's the real issue. And the right seem to fail to understand this. The right seem to think that we have more border guards there pointing guns at these people, and that will deal with the issue. It's, it's ridiculous. And it's, you know, I, I spoke earlier on, on earlier this week on Navarra about how you know some people don't view these people as human beings. You know, use the words use the word use the word migrant sometimes. That actually conceals the fact that these people are human beings. I think we need to understand that these human beings, you can't just point guns at people who are desperately seeking refuge in this country. It's an absolutely bizarre position to hold. And I think, you know, European democracies are constantly in this cycle of, you know, demonization and cruelty towards migrants. You know, we see it in other European nations, not just Britain. And I think ultimately what happens is, you know, the migrants do get let into this country, you know, or, or allowed to seek refuge somehow. What ends up happening is, is they're ostracized once they land in the UK. So this never-ending cycle of demonization, you know, never seems to end. You know, people come to this country and, and, and are, are able somehow to seek refuge, and yet they're, they're being blamed for NHS, they're being blamed for issues in, in housing, rather than the governments. And I think the governments, you know, 
have essentially placed migrants or series of governments, not just this current government, series of governments have placed migrants as, you know, the big problem that Britain face or the big issue that Britain have to grapple with because it helps absolve them of the, you know, looking in the mirror and looking at how they've created, you know, the crisis when it comes to the NHS or the crisis when it comes to housing or employment or all these other issues we face in, the, in this country, poverty. You know, by having, you know, people who've come to this country seek refuge as the four guys, these governments have essentially said, look, it's not our fault, it's these guys' faults. And it's all about pitting groups against each other. And I think the writer failed to realise this, that, you know, this is all a game. And, you know, if we want to, if we want people to stop crossing the channel and to actually have access to this country in a safe and reasonable way, it's about providing those safe routes, not by pointing guns at people in a vulnerable position. I mean, there's countless things I found very frustrating about that intervention from James Whale. Um, but, I mean, the, the other, we can't cope with these numbers. Now, I say this all the time on the show. Right. There are half as many asylum applications in the UK as there are in France, about a third um, the level of asylum applications in the UK as there are in Germany. Right. So the idea that we can't cope with the numbers we're getting, what kind of pathetic country are we? You know, oh, we, we can't possibly cope with half the number of asylum applications that France have. So what we're going to do is, is point guns at asylum seekers so they have to stay in France. Right. France is already um, processing more asylum claims than we are. So how does that work? Why are we so pathetic that we can't even handle half the amount of asylum applications that France has? What it is? What is it that's so sort of weak and vulnerable about our country that the moment we have half the amount of asylum applications as, as France has, everything's going to collapse? Or a third the amount of asylum applications that Germany has, everything's going to collapse? What is it about us that makes us so pathetic, so unable to deal with something which is half half the challenge? I mean. I, People say you shouldn't refer to asylum seekers as a challenge. I, I do think that sort of accepting people, integrating people, there is a challenge there, obviously, right? Uh, I don't think, pro you obviously shouldn't use the word problem, right? It's not problem, but there is a challenge. Well, the way that we can't deal with this challenge, which is half the size of that which they're experiencing in France or a further size of that which they're experiencing in Germany, it just seems like an admission that we're a shit country, right? Why don't we, do, why don't we be a bit more patriotic than that? Let's go to our final story. August might be known as silly season in the press, but still... The right-wing papers have really got to feel ashamed of themselves. They have got some terrible material this August. This was a story in The Telegraph this week. Highly sexualized drag queen competes on BBC Celebrity Masterchef. Highly sexualized drag queen. Look at this drag queen. This is just someone in an apron, right? The article begins like this. A row has broken out after the BBC invited a highly sexualized drag queen onto Celebrity MasterChef. Cheryl Hull, who took part in the debut series of RuPaul's Drag Race UK in 2019, appeared on Wednesday's episode of the show where she was eliminated from the heats. So she was, she was eliminated and they're still having a, a real row about this. But it has emerged that Hull, whose real name is Luke Underwood Bleach, has previously used the controversial term TERF which stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist, is regarded as a slur against those with gender-critical views and performed in front of children at Camp Bestival Festival in Dorset in 2021. Let's focus on that last claim there, that last allegation, which is that a drag queen performed in front of children at a music festival. I cannot believe they allowed a drag queen onto the BBC who performed in front of children. How shocking. Now, we can only hope, we can only pray that no one at the Telegraph has ever taken their child to see a Christmas pantomime because they would be in for quite a fright. Obviously, the pantomime dame, a staple of British culture. Now, suddenly, the mere fact that a drag queen has performed in front of children at a music festival should mean they should be nowhere near any programme on the BBC. Let's read some more from this well-researched and insightful article. And um, because, as you'll see, the Telegraph have interviewed some real experts on this 
topic. We do love to hear from experts on this topic via the Telegraph. Lucy Marsh has researched drag queens for the Family Education Trust, and she said, It is completely inappropriate because MasterChef is a family show, and drag is not family-friendly in any circumstances. It's highly sexualized, niche, adult-only entertainment. I don't know what being niche has got to do anything. Um, Brendan Clark-Smith is a Tory MP. He said, quote, Clearly I disagree with the use of the term turf. Cheryl Hole should take note of the fact that their critics are not wishing to completely cancel them, like many of those who subscribe to gender ideology do of those with gender-critical views. Tolerance and diversity must apply to all lawful viewpoints. But if you're a drag queen, you better not appear on a cooking show. That was not part of the quote. But it's the implication of the article. Um, so much to comment on here. We'll, we'll talk about this, this, this issue of drag queens being inherently sexualized in a moment. First of all, this idea that if someone says turf, that means that they are against free speech, essentially. It's just completely bizarre. Now, turf stands for trans exclusionary radical feminist. Now, to me, that is just a fairly straightforward description, right? A radical feminist is someone who thinks um, that men and women aren't sort of different in terms of their how they think, etc. But they think their difference is, is, is purely sort of physical. It's, it's about genitalia, fundamentally, right? So it's an interesting movement from the 1970s. And then a trans-exclusionary radical feminist is someone who thinks that trans people cannot be part of feminism. Trans people or trans women um, cannot be part of feminism because they are not women, right? It's, it's a descriptive term. I find the idea that people are offended at being described as they are, strange. Now, obviously, lots of people who might get called TERFs aren't actually radical feminists, but the idea that they are trans-exclusionary seems hard to argue with in, in many of these circumstances. Um, moving on to the issue of, of, of sexualizing people, because well, drag queens being inherently sexualized and therefore not being, should not be put on, on the television before the watershed. Now, the stupidest thing about this whole controversy over drag queens on family shows is the pretense that this is anything new. Now, Dame Edna, Lily Savage, they were both regular features of family TV for decades. And before anyone claims, well, they weren't sexualized, perhaps you've forgotten the backstory for Lily Savage was that she was a housewife and a sex worker. Now, to bring two stories together, this is Lily Savage being interviewed by the great Michael Parkinson, who passed away this week. The excesses of show business got the better of me. You know, and when you find yourself yes. in a skip at five o'clock in the morning... <laughs> one of the bases he rollers on your back or a mini... You know what I mean? You think, Lily, it's time to call it a day, love. So I went back up to Liverpool for a bit. Right. And, and what uh, did you do there? Well, I worked for a friend of mine who's got an agency. <clears throat> Big Rita, her agency is. And uh, I was a sort of social consultant, really. And um, <laughs> then there was all that business with Wayne Rooney. You know what I mean? And I thought... <laughs> I didn't know about that. Wayne Rooney. It was me, Michael. It was me. Yeah. I woke up, I looked at this spotty forehead. <laughs> Two inches of pubic hair, and I thought, Lily, you're too old. <laughs> now he's playing for Manchester. I know. Yes. 50 away. quid, and it wasn't worth it, I believe you, mate. <laughs> now, the Parkinson show was aired after the watershed, so in the evening, so I, I imagine... Um, the jokes on blankety-blank would not have been quite so explicit. But all this proves is that the same character, the same performer can have different content, can have different material for different audiences. And no one is suggesting Cheryl Hole, whatever she performs in, in nightclubs, was going to make explicit sex jokes on Celebrity Masterchef, right? Or in front of kids um, at a, a festival in the Isle of Wight, right? So Lily and Cheryl Cole are in the exact same position. And when it comes to Lily Savage, 
The Telegraph has taken a very different position. Now, after Paul O'Grady, who plays Lily Savage, passed away, they published this article. How Paul O'Grady dragged gay culture into the mainstream. The former altar boy who became Lily Savage was incapable of being dull and almost impossible to dislike. Impossible to dislike. Now, the Telegraph seems to think that anyone who is both a drag queen and has some sexual material should not appear on family shows, right? Now, the Telegraph has said that Paul O'Grady definitely fit into both of those categories, was impossible to dislike, or at least one of their commentators has, but you know, their general coverage of Paul O'Grady was all positive if you read the obituary or whatever. They weren't saying, how dare Lily Savage has ever been on, on family programs given that the character talked to Michael Parkinson about being a sex worker and having sex with Rain, Wayne Rooney in a skip. I think they were two separate scenarios, weren't they? But in any case, Mike, before I babble on, um, do the likes of the Telegraph realise how hypocritical they look on this issue? I don't think they do. I think the Telegraph in, in general are bad faith actors. I mean, Cheryl Hole's just on a cooking show. There's not much of a story here. And I just think we should just view the Telegraph as people who are just very muddled up in their thinking. I mean, just recently I saw the Telegraph publish an article about how the, human, the European Convention of Human Rights is a threat to democracy. Not climate breakdown, not, you know, issues to do with poverty, but the European Convention of Human Rights. So that shows you where their priorities are as a, as a newspaper. It's a bit modelled up. It's one of those slow days in, in, in the press office, summer day, haven't got much to talk about. So they're moaning about who's appearing on Celebrity MasterChef rather than focusing on the bigger, issue, bigger issues at hand. And I think this is part of like the media's, I, I speak about this a lot on, on, on Navarra, but part of the media's, the media attempt to kind of confect these kind of big wars of issues that just, in the grand scheme of things, just don't really that matter. I think that's a very reasonable <laughs> conclusion to this show. Um, Mike, thank you so much for joining me this evening. It's been a pleasure. And have a fantastic weekend. And enjoy the Women's World Cup final this Sunday. England are playing Spain. It'll be very dramatic. It's also supposed to be very sunny this weekend. So things are looking up for the next two days. Um, we'll be back on Monday um, from 6pm for now. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.